Welcome to the DLA Piper Media Sport and Entertainment Podcast. In this series, we explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how we must evolve to meet them both in the short and longer term. Each episode, our leading lawyers and guest speakers from across the worlds of media, sport and entertainment discuss market and legal insight on a wide range of issues. We will take a deeper dive into these topics at our MSC Summit later this year. We encourage you to register for the summit by visiting www.dlapiper.com slash MSE Summit. Hello, I'm Claire Sung. I'm a partner at DLA Piper in London in the IP, media, sport and entertainment team. In this episode of our podcast, we're going to talk about challenges and opportunities in the media and entertainment sector, and we'll explore this topic further at our MSE Summit. I'm delighted to be joined by two lawyers from Pearson PLC, a global education company, Sarah Riaz and Imogen Holmgren. Sarah is based in Germany. She works as a legal director for EMEA and the Americas, managing a team of lawyers across the globe with a focus on identifying, managing and mitigating legal risk, providing legal strategy and oversight for the legal support for these markets and managing the local legal teams. Imogen is a senior legal counsel in finance and corporate who supports the finance team from London, including the corporate development and Pearson Ventures teams on M&A and venture capital. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work with Imogen recently on Pearson's acquisition of a global online language learning platform, Mondly. This included various new capabilities, apps, virtual reality and augmented reality capability, as well as an award winning app that helps children learn languages called Mondly Kids. Pearson, being a globally renowned learning company, is going through its digital transformation with apps such as Pearson Plus, spearheaded by its CEO, Andy Bird, formerly from Disney. To my mind, this is such an interesting and pertinent deal, given the current media landscape and trends we're seeing. For example, we've got a combination of phenomenal amounts of content now available to consumers, which is increasingly immersive and interactive. But it's not just the material, it's also the way it's being consumed. Garner Inc. predicted that by 2026, 25% of people will spend at least an hour a day in the metaverse. We're also seeing changes in the location of purchasing decisions, with more people purchasing via social media platforms such as Instagram. We're seeing social media overtaking paid search as an advertising channel. And in addition, according to Deloitte's Digital Media Trends Report for 2022, UGC is becoming hugely popular with algorithm-fueled personalized content, which presents both huge challenges and opportunities. Influencers are boosting the social commerce around the world, which is no surprise. And gaming experiences are causing a blurring of virtual and real worlds, which sets the stage for the metaverse to take center stage. Pearson is known to many as a big content provider, but I know you've had an interesting history and evolution of the business. Sarah, can you tell us a bit about Pearson's development over the years? I certainly can. And Pearson has had quite a history. It's 177 years old. And it started out as a construction business, which is very far removed from what it does today. It switched into publishing in the 1920s. And at one point, it owned Penguin Books and the Financial Times. And then in 2015, it shifted its focus solely on education. So today, it's the world's learning company. It has 20,000 people around the globe and a presence in 200 countries. So yeah, it's doing that shift from a traditional publisher and printed content business to a global learning business with a digital focus. And, and that is very different from what it has been doing. 
traditionally Pearson products were sold through institutions mainly, so universities, other education providers. But now we're increasing our focus on engaging with those learners more directly and hopefully engaging with them throughout their life in their lifelong learning journey. So it's very different. There's a lot involved from a legal perspective, which is what we'll be talking about. And you can imagine the shift to digital was also accelerated by the pandemic. We had, as a business, made several attempts to push particularly teachers to go more digital, but teachers tend to be a reluctant bunch sometimes. And for a long time, teachers were still convinced that print products in classrooms were the way to go. But with the pandemic, all of that is changing. So the digital route is somewhat accelerated by that. And that makes it very exciting to be involved at this time. Great. So Pearson has gone through some really interesting challenges given the number of stakeholders involved and the complexities around who your customer is. Um, so if you could tell us a bit more about that and who the stakeholders are, who your customer is and, and how you really get your end consumers what they want. Yeah, that is a very interesting question at Pearson because the question of who is the customer is not straightforward because as you can imagine, mostly it's the teacher that selects the learning content for the student, certainly in a traditional school or university setting. It's then the parent often who pays for it, but it's the student who uses the content. So you've got basically three customers, three stakeholders whom you have to keep happy at the same time. We also, as Pearson, do business with with ministries of education, for instance, which is a whole different world, very highly regulated. And the business model is very different to, say, other products where it's simply one customer who chooses, pays for and uses the content. There's also a whole range of expectations and requirements that is involved in keeping all those stakeholders happy. We have always created our products with the learner in mind, but now we are speaking more directly to those learners as we progress on that digital lifelong learning journey. Um, we offer an array of products from childhood learning all the way throughout life, additional workforce skills, etc. So it's really that shift of keeping a learner engaged throughout life as they explore their learning journey curiously. And that is the new vision of Pearson, certainly in recent years, to engage with the customer in that way. But all the same time, we also have to still keep those parents who are paying happy and also those universities who are going to either choose our product or a competitive product. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, sounds like a lot of people to keep happy. And I think increasingly businesses are needing to digitize to stay relevant to their current consumers or their market indeed. And the Mondly deal itself is a great example of one way of adapting to change and digitizing a business to meet the tech needs and speed of the market. Imogen, how is Pearson thinking about its digital transformation from a growth perspective and what role the in-house council plays as part of this digital transformation? Thanks, Claire. From a growth perspective, how do we keep delivering great tools and meeting learner expectations when technology is ever evolving and we want to be at the forefront of that development? So for me, really, the question is, how do we do that? And for me, it's either you've got organic growth where we're developing products internally. And in that perspective, Sarah and I are extremely lucky. We work with great authors and amazing product developers that bring that learning content to life. And I think here a good example is Pearson Plus, which is one of our online learning platforms where students can access content through their computers and on their phone. 
and really learn wherever they are and at the pace they wish. And when you think about consumers today, like you and me, we want to be on the go. We want to be able to get our content wherever we are, whenever we have time. And that is one of the objectives that we're trying to do is adapt to what our customers really want. So we've talked a little bit about organic growth, but there is also aspects of external growth that can help grow our digital offering. And that's actually an area that I specifically work in when we talk about M&A and ventures. External growth can really help when we need a quicker go-to-market strategy or there's assets that provide valuable add-ons that complement our product that we develop internally. We have, for example, investing in up-and-coming education startups that are disrupting the market. And that really accelerated, the edtech market really accelerated during the pandemic where we were adapting to different ways of working and learning. And we're very lucky that we actually have a specific Pearson's Venture Fund that we call Pearson Ventures that we invest through edtech companies. So... When we're thinking about organic growth and external growth, we can actually complement both growth strategies together. And here I'm just going to use Pearson Plus as a, as a good example. We acquired a company called Clutch Prep this year, and it's a company with truly talented people who are passionate about what they do. And what Clutch Prep actually does is they develop vibrant video learning experience that helps students learn, such as video tutorials. So we're looking into different mediums to help students learn and eventually provide all such solutions through a user-friendly platform, which will be Pearson Plus. So where does the in-house lawyer fit into this? And what are we talking about in terms of digital transformation? We're not only seen as legal advisors, but we are considered as a sounding board and important members in evaluating risk and impact. I see myself more as a, as a business partner rather than just a legal advisor. And I really feel part of the decision-making process. We can talk in more detail on some experiences on how we can influence and help shape the decision-making process during the summit. But as a good example of what role I play, legal due diligence, I think, is key. It plays a vital role in by enabling us to really understand how a company operates, its culture. And I feel like it's a starting point for business conversations to rely on BAU post-close. Again... We are not here to just determine legal risk, but we are seen as facilitators to the business to assess risk overall and sometimes a starting point for strategic thought. As everybody knows, it's not always easy on merging cultures, but I feel proud to be part of Pearson, that we're in a good place for ed tech companies to land and feel included as part of Pearson's growth journey. And legal is a fundamental part of that process. Thanks, Imogen. Now, having worked with you on a recent deal, it was clear that Pearson is used to M&A, as you say, and you've got the experience and processes to meet the challenges that arise. Are there any tips or particular war stories you wanted to share about getting this kind of deal done? Well, I don't think we can actually call these war stories, but I think anyone who's gone through an M&A process will be able to say that it can be quite intense. And when going through such a process, I always try to keep in mind at every stage of the deal that a true measure of success of an acquisition is how well such business will become part of Pearson. A company is not going to change its identity once it's acquired. It's an ongoing process of understanding how to best work together, merging cultures, as I mentioned before, and being open to new ideas on how to operate. When you take that into perspective, that has actually helped us on aligning on synergies and growth generally. And in-house counsel play a fundamental role in achieving such an objective, 
thinking about adapting legal processes and policies and how legals see different customer journeys depending on a business. And so it's really important to take in cultures and countries in which our learners are located. We can go into detail on what I believe flows from that principle during the summit, but I can give you some key examples now. So I think the first thing, and I always, everybody needs to realize that an M&A process is really important to talk about people and cultural fit. That really needs to be front of mind that founders have put heart and soul into growing their businesses, and they've been doing that for the last 10 to 20 years. And when you think about it, they are entrusting us to take that business and their people that form it on the next step of their journey. It's a huge leap of faith and change is never easy. So M&A is a people process. And for an acquisition to work, maintaining those relationships are fundamental once a business has been acquired. On some occasions, legal counsel, it being external or internal, and even both, can help take away pressure points by playing an intermediary role. Founders are likely to become senior executives of Pearson. We see founders as fundamental to the success of the businesses going forward. And we need to ensure that they feel part of Pearson from day one of the transaction and that there's alignment. And that's where I feel like legal counsel can play the biggest role in maintaining the relationships between businesses. Another tip I can say is that we do really need to acknowledge that M&A process is in addition to founders BAU. M&A processes, as I mentioned before, can be quite grueling, requiring a lot of work from all sides and within very short timeframes. But especially for founders of these businesses, they've spent a lot of time developing and growing their business. But having to run a business while going through an M&A process is not an easy task. And that needs to be kept in mind at all times for every work stream and keep the process as painless as possible for them. I see M&A as... As a metaphor, I see it as a sprint, but the completion's not the finish line. The real work starts on completing the trans. Once you've completed a transaction and when you're in a process, this can sometimes be forgotten because it's so intense that you feel like you just need to get to completion, but we really need to remember that completion is really the starting point. So that sprint and that intense process cannot impact the important work that has to be achieved post-deal. And this is where I find that the magic should happen once a business becomes part of Pearson. A third example is it's super important to be aligned on integration principles prior to day one. And what legal due diligence really means for Pearson, I think I've touched on this before, but the best tip I learned only when I went in-house is that due diligence exercise is not just a legal risk assessment that we talked about earlier. The added value of it is to take any of the findings and discuss with the business on how best to consider these on a BAU basis once the deal has been completed. It's a starting point to a longer conversation. And honesty is key. Being able to find compromises before a deal closes on what BAU may look like and figuring out the best level of integration is crucial. And for us lawyers within the framework of not gun jumping, of course, Honesty has generally led to a mutual relationship of trust and respect, even when you're having a difficult conversation. And this is where you really start the process of people fit and believing that an acquisition is going to be successful post-deal by delivering upon synergies. Final point that I want to touch on is successful integration does not mean that a business should be fully integrated. And that's quite a controversial statement for some big businesses. 
It's super important for us as an organization to ensure that growth companies can continue on their growth pattern and for us to be able to bring new opportunities and synergies being Pearson, a global leading learning company. I always feel like we can bring new opportunities when we work better together. On the flip side, we also need to ensure that a newly acquired entity adopts certain processes that are required of a listed company of our size. The tip here is to trying to find the right balance, focusing on priorities and ensuring everybody is in a win scenario. So again, as I mentioned before, there is not a one size fit all approach and that's okay. We need to be able to be nimble. And I have to mention one a major tip that I got from someone else I always try and share this is that design thinking and understanding the why is a helpful technique that I found in this scenario on how to integrate acquired businesses from a legal perspective. Thanks, Imogen. That was great. Some really good tips for us there. Um, Now, Sarah, what kind of legal challenges are front of mind when achieving your goals in terms of providing the best content for your learners? Yeah, many. (laughs) Pearson is traditionally great at producing world-class education content. That's its bread and butter. And we have some of the best authors to work with. And we partner with big companies such as the BBC and Disney for additionally interesting learning content. So you have that traditional spectrum of legal matters for publishers like author agreements, protecting our IP, making sure that we track any third-party content that we might use in our products and pay all the contributors. And then, of course, all the distribution and sales deals for our products around the world. So that's sort of a given, and we're very good at that already. But with moving to digital, there's a number of additional interesting legal challenges. And of course, with digital, the one big challenge we all share as digital companies is keeping the data safe. So particularly personal data, but also education data and the protections around that, making sure that we have all of that looked after from a legal perspective. We also at Pearson, of course, offer products to younger learners. So we're dealing with issues like underage customers, parental consents. There are always uh, concerns around safeguarding when digital products are speaking to very young customers. And then you've got some very sort of modern stuff in the in the space of AI, because, of course, Pearson, like most digital companies, are looking at that space. And as learners engage with AI-powered learning products, we, of course, have to make sure that from a legal perspective, that is all looked after and done well. And then at Pearson, the big challenge is being active in 200 countries. You sort of have to keep on top of the legal landscape globally. So that is not an easy feat. And then the last thing I would say that's a particular challenge is something that Imogen already touched upon. But as we grow and we purchase some smaller companies, some of them startups, there's, of course, sometimes that navigating that cultural difference, particularly when it comes to risk appetite, because a lot of these companies have done very well taking a reasonable level of risk for the size they are. But then, of course, as they become part of a large global PLC, that risk taking has to change. And that's sometimes a pretty hard sale to people who've done well with how they have run things. But that's exactly where all the things Imogen mentioned comes in. You have to develop that mutual respect and you have to trust them with a lot of the decisions while also taking them on that journey of realizing that they are now part of a large PLC. So yeah, plenty of challenges all across all the spectrums of legal work, really. 
Great. Thanks, Sarah. Really interesting. It sounds like you've got your work cut out given the number of countries that you're you're across. Um, and it really interesting, as you say, that you've both picked up this point around culture and integration. That's certainly something I've seen sort of where you, to use Imogen's word, getting an, a nimble company coming into perhaps a more established company where you have got additional layers of compliance and regulation and sort of working out how does that work in the future. So, um, you know, and as you say, so many different regulatory challenges to consider. And I guess that's one thing that keeps it interesting is the constant of change. I think you mentioned AI and obviously the, the government has just published its response to its consultation. And we're now going to be seeing, you know, an amend to the copyright law, which, you know, should make it easier to analyse material for the purposes of machine learning. But it'll be interesting to see whether the changes do promote a wider data mining techniques to train AI systems and whether that might be something that's useful to Pearson. But keeping pace with technology is also a challenge for regulators. One regulator, though, I, I think is quite interesting is seeing how proactive they are is the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK. And as you might know, they're using you know avatars and proactivity to try and see what the child journey is and the risks relating to children. So, you know, I think some other topics we discussed and perhaps for the summit are things around the sort of pay and uh, requirements for authors and performers under the digital single market, albeit not for the UK, and, and also the, the delay to the online harms bill and many others. You know, But Sarah, as a company, how do you try and keep up with the ever-increasing regulation within this space? Could you tell us a bit more about Pearson's setup and legal function? Yeah. So as you say, we have our work cut out. Thankfully, we're quite a large and a very diverse team. So we're over 50 lawyers across the globe. We're also supported by a legal services partner called Moray, and they do mainly our transactional day-to-day work nowadays. But we do have a legal team that includes local lawyers in the various geographies, obviously not all 200 countries, but regions, particular regions that are of significance to us. And then we also have the so-called centers of expertise where we have sort of a, you know, your typical privacy department and an IP department. We've got a compliance department. These are our experts that we can turn to. And then, of course, we also rely on external legal advice, particularly in the M&A space, but also for litigation work and for specific projects and transactions. So there really is a collaboration between lawyers from all around the globe with different areas of expertise. It is a very diverse bunch of collaborators. Definitely. And with so many issues, there needs to be an approach around prioritization and strategy in meeting these key challenges. Imogen, how important do you think diversity of thought is in terms of dealing with the challenges you and and Sarah have been raising today? I can't mention how important it is to us and it should be for everybody operating in the digital space. I mean, Pearson's a global learning company, which means that we provide learning solutions to learners on a global scale, like Sarah mentioned. So all of our customers are from different backgrounds and cultures. Learners are not necessarily going to want or are used to learning in similar ways. And it's for us, Pearson, to be able to adapt our products to how our learners wish to learn. With digital products, we can have a a much larger outreach. And therefore, it's really important for us to ensure that our products reflect our learners. And that content mirrors who our learners are and what they want to learn. A good example of a product that has a global outreach and really has the learner in mind, again, is Monly. It's such a special application where it actually enables customers to learn 41 languages. But what's really important is they can learn those languages from their native tongue, which when you think about it, it's such a great opportunity when people don't necessarily speak English. You're not going to learn a language from English if you are not 
able to learn English. So I feel like Monley really, really delivers on that diversity criteria. So when we think a little bit more about our customers, we can only reach the goal having a diverse team that reflects our learners. And this is also true of the legal team. I mean, Sarah and I have very diverse backgrounds. Sarah is working in both, has worked in both UK and Germany, and she's UK qualified. And myself being British, I grew up most of my life in Asia and France, completing my legal studies in France. So I feel like within the legal team, we're quite good examples of how our legal team is composed. But this is also reflected in senior management with our chief legal officer, who's an extremely bright and inspiring woman. She's worked in many different countries and currently living in Brazil. So I feel like we really do reflect our customer base. And I think, again, as I mentioned, this is truly one of our core strengths in the legal team, but more broadly in Pearson. For us, having a diverse range of lawyers within our team has really helped us understand and navigate different laws that apply in all jurisdictions where we do business. But honestly, this isn't sufficient to be able to assist our business. We managed to go the extra mile by understanding how those laws work in practice and how businesses respond to a particular regulatory regime. So we're also able to take into cultural sensitivities. It's not necessarily all about the law. It's also about what our customers expect from us. And that's where we're really seen again. And I'll use this motto. We're really true business partners to our business globally. And that's how we see ourselves. When we talk about how we use external counsel, as Sarah mentioned, we really need our external counsel to mirror our approach. And I feel like DLA really reflects that, being able to support us everywhere around the globe. So it's really been an honor to work with you, Claire, on some of the projects that we've worked to date. We could talk all day about diversity. It's such an important subject. So I want to be able to reflect on some of the diversity seminars and webinars that I've attended recently with DLA, and I really recommend people can access those through replay. They've had some really amazing panels, and I've learned a lot from them. Great. Thanks, Imogen. And thank you for your nice comments. That's really kind of you. Now, I think just to finish off, really, we started off the whole podcast setting it in context and looking at some of the media trends. And unsurprisingly, the metaverse is is something that we're looking towards in terms of the stats that I mentioned Can we expect to see Pearson dipping its toe in the metaverse? I'll take that one, Sarah, if you don't mind. As I mentioned before, Pearson really want to be at the forefront of what's going to be disrupting the market. And we're very, very lucky we've got a Pearson's venture team. And they're always looking at innovative companies and innovative solutions. And apologies, I can't say innovative. It's really hard word to say. But basically what we're looking at is what are disrupting factors to our market and the metaverse is going to be one of them. As you mentioned, Claire, people are going to be using the metaverse in their day to day. And it's a really incredible tool for us to be able to reach out to learners and a new way of medium of people to learn. So as a good example this year, we actually invested in a company called Tailspin. It's a really cool company where they provide products and work in the field of immersive learning. So I think it's Fair to say that Pearson is interested in the metaverse, but we'll need to see how that's going to disrupt our market. Great. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks, Sarah. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of the DLA Piper Media Sport and Entertainment Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast using your usual subscription platform and also register for our MSE Summit taking place virtually towards the end of the year. Please visit www.dlapiper.com forward slash MSE Summit. We hope you can join us. Thank you for listening.